We are Victim of Illusion, you are listening to the tall, friendly, Atheist Dead podcast. And the next 30 seconds are brought to you by our album Invisible Light, available at our Bandcamp website. Hello, my name is Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad, and host of the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. Wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, and whatever you happen to be doing, I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Recently, I came across the cross-examine video, What Are Six Reasons Christians Deconvert? This one isn't directly from Frank Turek himself, it's from Elisa Childers, who is on the cross-examine team. So, on Frank Turek's team, but not necessarily Frank Turek himself. Now, I picked this video because I, I get the impression that Christians completely misunderstand why Christians become atheists. So I wanted to see this video and respond to it and make some points. So here is Elisa Childers from Cross-Examined with What Are Six Reasons Christians Deconvert? I think as Christians, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is coming back. His return is in the future. And if we keep our eyes on that, we can respectfully disagree with each other on how long the millennium is, when it's happening, and other specifics about end times. Given that every single generation since Christ's ascension up until now has had people saying, Jesus is coming again soon. I think it's, you know, you, you still can't rationally say that Jesus is coming soon, especially when you read the Gospels and read what Jesus is reported as saying to his disciples that, you know, some of you will see me coming on the clouds. You know, this generation will not pass away. And even up to John, the disciple who wrote Revelation, which scholarship seems seems to suggest was written at about the turn of the second century. You know, people of first century Roman antiquity were expecting Jesus to come back and overthrow the Romans. This is what Revelation is about. Hey everyone, this is Elisa Childers for crossexamine.org. Deconstruction is the process in which someone who grew up a Christian starts to pick apart their beliefs and explain them away, often discarding the beliefs they grew up with. 
Sometimes Christians will deconstruct all the way into agnosticism or atheism, but very often they deconstruct into a broader type of spirituality, often progressive Christianity. Well, if we find and we have good reason to believe those beliefs aren't true, then, you know, yes, we'll discard them. We will replace them with, well, sorry, if we care that what we believe is true, then yes, we will discard them in favor of something better. Like, for example, if I was, I'm sure, if I was a Muslim, and I grew up a Muslim, and I deconstructed myself out of Islam, I'm sure you would be cheering and hollering. Well, sorry, let's say I was a Muslim, and I deconstructed, and then I went to Christianity. You'll be, you know, hollering and cheering and getting excited that, you know, oh, a Muslim you know, questioned his faith and came to Jesus. So it's not really the fact that someone is deconstructing their faith. What the real issue is, is that someone is deconstructing their faith and finding that Christianity isn't what it's made out to be. That's where the real problem is. And that's what Elisa has has a problem with in that, hold on, you're using your rational faculties to find that Christianity is wrong. How dare you? But, yeah. And there was a post on a progressive Christian blog site that talked about the six pillars of deconstruction. And I think it's important for us to understand the process of deconstruction if we're going to help friends and loved ones of ours who might be going through the process themselves. And so according to this progressive Christian site, these six pillars are the pillars that the entire Christian faith rests upon. And once one of them begins to fall, the next one falls, and essentially the entire structure of Christianity will crumble underneath its weight. So let's talk through these six pillars. Now, I've just noticed that in the description for the YouTube video, they don't mention what this website is. They don't mention what blog, they don't mention anything about this particular this particular article that they're uh, criticizing or you know discussing. And this is one of the things that I find about uh, modern fundamentalist Christianity is that when they discuss something, they they want to criticize it without letting you know what it is they're criticizing. It's almost like they're trying to hide what it is that they're criticizing so that you don't know where to look, so you don't get the other side of the argument. And one of the biggest examples of this that I came across was when I was uh, when I was writing for my book, "The Best Religion for the Task at Hand." Um, the Creation Ministries International website kept on referring to this mysterious YouTube video that they're criticizing, but I could not find any links to this actual YouTube video they're criticizing. They kept on saying, "Oh, the." You know, the this person made a, a law analogous to the Old Testament, uh, but it fails because of this. Well, hold on, you know, I, I don't know what it is you're criticizing. And so without knowing what it is you're criticizing, then it's like, you know, watching Abraham Simpson get angry at the clouds for something. But yeah, I'd love to see what you think the six pillars of the Christian faith are that will stop people deconstructing it.
The first pillar of deconstruction is the Bible. So according to this post, the foundation of Christianity should be Christ, but they argue often it's not, it's the Bible. Here's what they say. The foundation of the Christian faith should be Christ, but that's not the case, unfortunately. For most evangelical Christians especially, the Bible is their authority, and they will gladly affirm this if you're uncertain about it. Yes, I actually uh, uh, agree. Um, in modern fundamental evangelicalism, it's not the God of the Bible that they worship. It's the book itself. And... What, I, what I'm trying to allude to here is things like presuppositionalism, where, you know, the Bible is the Bible is not only the word of God, the Bible is assumed to be inerrant, 100% true, uh, the final authority on all matters, historical, moral, scientific, um, every, everything like that. And... This is one uh, one question that I find stumps, uh, particularly creationists, when it comes to evolution. So when I so I'll ask a creationist, you know, if God appeared to you and said to you that, yeah, evolution was how I did things, would you trust the God that's in front of you? Or would you resort to the Bible? Would you resort to the book in your hand? And more often than not, the answer I get is that the you know the Christian would rather trust the book in their hand than the deity that has appeared in front of them. And yeah, once you and this is the thing in modern Christianity. Yeah, the Bible is like the the book. And it's like if you criticize the Bible, it's like you're criticizing. There seems to be no independent way of proving God outside of the presumption that, firstly, God exists, and second, that the Bible is indeed representative of what God is trying to communicate. So, yeah. Once you remove the pillar of the Bible, then, yeah, why not question the rest of Christianity? And so according to this process of deconstruction, once the authority of the Bible gets moved out of the way, that pillar begins to fall. But I'd like to point something out in the way this is worded. Notice he says the foundation should be Christ, but often it's the Bible. But then he goes on to use the word authority. Well, I just want to point out that foundation and authority are two different things. I think most evangelical Christians, myself included, would agree that the foundation of the Christian faith is Christ. Yeah, I would say that modern evangelicals. Now, I don't hate modern evangelicals, but what I do, uh, what I do dislike about their belief system is that it's uh, Jesus or bust. It's you know, and all or nothing. You know, it's very. Like, there's a reason why the worst examples of Christianity are modern evangelicals. Um, and yeah, look, I suppose it's good to have a 
good foundation, but if your foundation is the presupposition that text translated into English from copies of copies of copies are the divine and inerrant word of a deity that we can't prove exists, and then you treat that as your authority. Well, no, I'll go back one. Sure, you can have that as your foundation. If you have that as your foundation, um, okay, you know, I guess. But then when you treat it as your authority, as in, you know, when you make political decisions by it, when you make decisions about how you treat other people by it, when you judge other people's character by it, when it, you know, when you stop using uh, reason or when you start, or when you start using theology as the basis for your logic, as the basis for your science, as the basis for your morality, as the basis for your history, then, yeah, I think what you'll find is that you will eventually come into one of two paths. You will either end up realizing that what the Bible says doesn't line up with reality, or the other fork in the road is that you go further and further into cognitive dissonance, where you keep on making escape hatches, you keep on making uh, post hoc rationalizations, where you keep on making tenuous excuses for why, or, or you just pretend that the Bible is, you know, that the Bible lines up with reality. You know, you just make excuses, you just, you know, Believe as hard as you can, and any doubt is from Satan, because of course. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should allow Christ to inform what our view of the Bible is. Where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Which Jesus? Are we talking about the very plain and human-like Jesus of Mark? Are we talking about the anti-Semitic firebrand of John? Are we talking about the Jewish hippie of Luke? Or are we talking about the ultra-Orthodox rabbi in Matthew? Which Jesus? And over and over again, Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures, specifically calling them the Word of God. In fact, in Matthew 4, when he was being tempted in the wilderness by the devil, he appealed to the authority of scripture to fight off the temptation. So because we believe Christ is the foundation of our faith, we obey what he says about the Bible. Hold on. The problem here is that Jesus is reported to have. You know, being tempted by Satan. Jesus is reported as having used the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is, you know, not, Jesus wrote nothing for himself. And again, I go back to which Jesus, because it's not every gospel that Jesus was tempted. And I think even in two of the uh, temptation accounts, um, yeah, there is some difference there between the words that. You know, that he that he said. So, like, did Jesus say to one you know one disciple, you know, hey, I said this to Satan, and then to another disciple, he goes, oh, I actually said this to Satan, you know, and I said which which Jesus, and yeah, just just because Jesus is reported as having said some verses as from the Old Testament, 
doesn't necessarily make them the word of God. You have to establish that Jesus actually existed and that Jesus was the son of God. Well, you have to establish that God exists. You have to establish that this God can have children. You have to establish how this God had children. Um, Yeah, a whole lot of uh, assumptions and presuppositions that don't make sense. The second pillar of deconstruction is eternal torment or hell. According to this post, once you start to doubt the absolute accuracy of the scriptures, it's a short walk to questioning the validity of eternal torment in hell for those who don't pray the prayer or join the Christian club. Yeah, I... Well, firstly, I I don't believe hell literally exists. If hell literally exists, then you have to show me where it is, show me how it operates, uh, help me understand what happens there, how you get there, how you get out, who gets out, um, you know, all all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't believe hell literally exists. But what I do believe is that hell is a Basically, a reworking of the old concept where in order to enforce good behavior, you have this um, maximal reward, maximal punishment dichotomy where you know, the good people, after they pass on, they get you know, eternally rewarded, whereas those people who are considered evil get eternally punished. And there's something very primal in that. And Christianity is by no means the only religion to have this sort of uh, you know, system in it. Um, there are other religions that have, you know, you have some religions that have a neutral afterlife. You have some religions that have, you know, but probably the closest analogy would be either the the Egyptians or the Zoroastrians. And I think there's a case to be made that after the Persian conquest of Israel, uh, the Jews started to pick up some of these ideas where um, you know, the concept of being rewarded after you, after you die starts to infiltrate Jewish thinking. And then it really becomes clear in the New Testament. And I think one of the reasons that the teaching of hell becomes apparent in the New Testament is that in New Testament times, Israel had been taken over by the Romans, who in turn had taken over the the Greeks. We find in Greek mythology that uh, Hades is the place of the afterlife, and then you have a specific place in Hades called Tartarus, which is where the more extreme punishments are handed out. And then you have things like the river, the river Styx, as well, and. We, I, I believe there's a, there's a case to be made that you know, the the Christians borrowed that from you know from the Greeks who had already had such a profound influence on on Jewish thought, which is where you get you know, Hellenized Jews. And given that the Gospels were written in fluent Greek, means that the authors of the Gospel had you know a very deep understanding of how Greek mythology worked. But the other problem I have with hell is that even as a uh, a justice system, it's a very poor justice system. Um, I'm sorry if I prattle on about this a bit, but um, there's an analogy that I, that I come up with 
called the the agnostic paramedic and the serial killer. And what I try to get across with that is you have, let's say, you know, your common uh, serial killer in America who, who gets sentenced to death. He um, he's about to be executed, and just before he's executed, a priest comes. The priest prays the prayer of salvation, and after a final meal of you know, coke and fried chicken, you know this this guy will you know go to heaven to be you know, rewarded for what he literally did in the last moments of his life, without any recompense to the victims or the families of the victims. And then on the other hand, you have a paramedic who has gone to gone through extensive training at great cost, who works a very stressful job, who puts themselves in harm's way every time there's an emergency or when someone's life is in danger. But this particular paramedic, he's agnostic or he's atheist or he just hasn't been convinced any or any way of the claims of Christianity. And so because this agnostic paramedic couldn't bring themselves to believe on what I would call flimsy evidence, they they not only face a, an eternity of torment, but in some strains of Christian thought, they deserve their, you know, they deserve their punishment of eternal torment. And so then I ask you, you know, which does this morality system seem fair where a person can literally kill people with no thought for the victims or the economic or emotional impact and they get eternally rewarded on the basis of saying sorry to an unseen an unseen god in a moment of desperation literally before they're about to be killed Whereas a paramedic who has, who would have throughout the course of their career saved dozens, if not hundreds of lives, especially at great personal risk and at great personal cost to themselves, well, that, that, that person automatically goes to hell unless they you know, acquiesce, basically. As I don't think that's right as the standard of morality that we should be judging people in history by. So right off the bat, I want to point out that becoming a Christian isn't praying a magic prayer or joining some kind of exclusive club. It's placing active trust in the person of Jesus Christ and the saving work he accomplished on the cross. It's giving him our lives and following Christ. But I do think there are some misunderstandings about what hell actually is. We read in scripture about the gnashing of teeth of those who are in hell. I always thought that meant that they were just regretful and remorseful that they never had a chance to hear the gospel. But when we look that phrase up in scripture, gnashing of teeth, it's commonly used in reference to an enemy. It's an act of violence and rebellion against someone you hate. So in reality, people in hell are gnashing their teeth at their enemy who is God. They don't love him. They don't want to be in his presence forever. That's interesting. I've never heard that interpretation. Um, and if that's true, that makes it even weirder because. Jesus does use the saying where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, so it's funny how she's gone to the, all oh, the gnashing of teeth is done by people who are enemies of God. But what about the weeping? Um, why are the people weeping? Um, is it because, you know, 
they got sent to be punished somewhat unfairly. I also think a case can be made for there being different levels of punishment in hell. I make the case for this and other points about hell in my book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. The third pillar of deconstruction is penal substitutionary atonement. So according to this post, once the pillar of the Bible falls, once the pillar of hell falls, next comes the atonement. Um, yeah, I find a substitutionary atonement to be quite a uh, quite a somewhat immoral uh, idea. It's like saying that you know, no matter what crime you commit, as long as you well, as long as you believe uh, that you know this person died in your place, then hey, all, all is forgiven. Um, I frequently use what's called the mob analogy. And it's where, you know, hey, um, that's a nice life you've got there. Shame if anything happened to it. But say what? Uh, I've, th- my son over here, how about you, you know, you follow him and you do what he says and everything will be all right. Hey, that's an offer you can't refuse. Firstly, um, substitutionary atonement is literally a human sacrifice. And there are verses in the Bible that refer to Jesus dying as a sacrifice. So, on one hand, we're told that you know God hates human sacrifice, and then on the other, we're told that you know His updated rules for living require you to accept that this human sacrifice was for you. Um, no, I, I'm not. I'm not buying it. Uh, the next part as well is. You know, what have I done to deserve death? Yeah, is it because I've been afflicted by an unseen ancient curse whose symptoms are many and varied? Um, the curse whose symptoms, you know, don't seem to make themselves apparent except by reading an ancient book. And then the next, the the next problem with substitutionary atonement is that in reality, God sacrificed Himself to Himself as a workaround for rules that He created that He foreknew wouldn't be adequate for the task. So yeah, you take that pillar, things make a lot less sense. In progressive Christianity, the idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son implicates the moral character of God, turning him into some kind of cosmic child abuser. Couldn't have said it better myself. But as we know, Jesus himself said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. He said he had the authority to do this given to him by the Father. In one gospel, he's reported as saying that. But again, you know, it's literally putting words in his mouth. You can make anyone say anything when they're not around to correct the official record. And also, we need to understand that Jesus is God. He willingly came to earth. In fact, it's why he came. So when we see it like that, we don't have this petty, wrathful, vengeful father requiring some hapless victim of a whipping boy to come take punishment in our place. Well, hold on. If Jesus is God, then that means Jesus is just as complicit in the atrocities of the Old Testament. You can't say that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is, you know, this 
big, mean, angry overlord, but then all of a sudden say, oh, well, look, you know, Jesus is the the warm, fluffy, puppy-hugging, you know, opposite. You know, if they're one and the same, then they're one and the same. And you can't excuse human rights violations or expect us to overlook human rights violations just because, you know, of a couple of pithy quotes in the, in a couple of books. You have God himself saying sin needs to be punished. I'll take the punishment upon myself. Because of a really crappy system you created that was doomed to fail over and over and over and over again. If we look at the Garden of Eden, fail. If we look at the Noahide Covenant, fail. We look at the Davidic Covenant, fail. And if we look at this new covenant, fair to say, it's failed. The fourth pillar of deconstruction is suffering in the world. This is a big one. In fact, the Post says this is the biggest one. And granted, it's a huge question that Christians have wrestled with and have to continue wrestling with. And that is, if God is good, why does he allow suffering in the world? It's not so much even if he's good. We have to firstly assume that he exists and secondly is capable. It could well be that there is a deity that is all-powerful but is, you know, welcoming suffering, is inviting suffering, is engineering suffering in the world. You can't just assume that everything you read in the book is true. You have to, you know, at some stage question question things. But you know, if we look at uh you know at the at the flood, we can see that, you know, far from alleviating suffering, this deity engineered an event which caused everyone in the world to suffer. So you can't say, you know, the problem of evil can be easily dismissed. Because over and over again, we see in numerous instances where God engineered or allowed or brought or even welcomed suffering. Many Christians have done great work in this area. I recommend Clay Jones' book, Why Does God Allow Evil? But one of the ways I like to look at it is that it's true. We have a lot of suffering in the world, and most of that suffering is brought on by people hurting other people. And God allows us to have free will to make our rebellious choices here on earth. But not all suffering is because of human choices. If we look at volcanoes, if we look at earthquakes, if we look at floods, if we look at viruses. And one of the examples that I make in my book is the example of flesh-eating bacteria. If we look at the existence and the operation of flesh-eating bacteria from a strictly creationist view, there is no way that God escapes blame for the existence and the operation of flesh-eating bacteria. But then you also fall into this trap where if God can create one paradise where free will isn't breached or abrogated, why not make a second? So we can't say that you know, God is powerless. 
But he didn't just solve the problem of suffering. He became the answer to the problem of suffering by stepping into his creation, taking our sins upon himself, paying the payment for our sins, and dying in our place so that we could place saving faith in him and ultimately be with him in heaven forever where there will be no more suffering. So nothing in your life matters because a Jewish demigod died because you were infected by an unseen curse. That doesn't make sense and that doesn't make God any any more moral. And yeah, it's like, you know, if if I went to a domestic violence shelter and I said, hey, hey, people, you know, don't worry about what's happened to you. The good news is here. I've got gospels and Bibles to give out to everyone. That, you know, that's not alleviating any suffering. And also this whole concept that no matter what happens in your life, you know, once you get to heaven, everything will be fine. You know, those people who, you know, were abused by Catholic priests or by Jehovah's Witnesses or by, you know, although those uh, abortion doctors killed by Protestant evangelicals. You know, it's like, yeah, I think that the, the Christian idea of alleviating suffering just because, you know, you're supposed to feel good about something that, you know, you're supposed to feel good about something that you're supposed to hold off as long as possible. And I find that quite immoral to be honest. Evil or pain. The fifth pillar of deconstruction is end times hype. So according to the post, if you live long enough, you'll start to notice an embarrassing yet consistent string of failed prophecies concerning the return of Jesus and the end of the world. And he makes a very good point here. That is definitely something the church has gotten wrong. Yes, this this lady is right. You know, every single every single prediction of the end of the world uh, you know, be it by you know people who are overly spiritual, just you know typing stuff on Facebook, whether it's someone who stands up in front of a church and declares that you know the end times are coming soon, or whether it be someone like Harold Campling or Jim Jones or the Heaven's Gate cult, or you know people like that who require you to give up worldly possessions, who require you to give up relations, who who require obedience and adherence to their ideology, and you're the evil person if you don't, you know, acquiesce. That's where... So when when we see all three of those levels, we see either, you know, plain cognitive dissonance, or we see, you know, malfeasance, or we just see evil men manipulating people. And in the case of Harold Campling, um, from what I read, he was apparently making media bookings in his diary for, you know, two days after he was saying the end of the world was, was supposed to come. So, yeah, it's... And this is, this is the thing. Um, but I think that the biggest problem in this aspect is that Jesus clearly was speaking to his disciples when he said, you know, this this generation will not pass away until all these things are done. 
and I've come across, you know, people on Facebook or Twitter who goes, oh, no, um, he was talking about the age of the Holy Spirit, and we're currently in the age of the Holy Spirit. But no, Jesus was clearly talking about an, an apocalypse because he was saying, you know, uh, what did he say? You know, pray that it doesn't happen in winter and you know, pray that, you know, the people who are about to give birth, you know, doesn't happen when you're about to give birth because of all the, you know, pain and the screaming and and all that. So, yeah, so I think what the problem is, is that once you realize that it's been 2,000 years since those words were said, and when you stop decontextualizing those words, then you go, yeah, why did I believe that? And yeah, I agree. Once you once you remove the pillar of, you know, end times prophecy, you know, you may as well question the whole thing. In times past, some Christians have made eschatology more of a primary doctrine rather than a secondary one. I think as Christians, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is coming back. His return is in the future. And if we keep our eyes on that, we can respectfully disagree with each other on how long the millennium is, when it's happening, and other specifics about end times. That's interesting because if she was around, you know, two or three hundred years ago, when there was a lot more intersectarian violence in in Christendom, you know, there was no way you could get you could really get away with. Oh, look, let's just agree to disagree. You know, um, you would have been kicked out. Well, so the, probably the least punishment is that you would have been, you know, labelled a heretic. Um, you would have been brought before an Inquisition. You would have been uh, probably exiled. Um, and this is this ties into another thing that you know Christians have treated other Christians um, pretty poorly on the basis of what they believed, and a lot of that was part of their eschatology, which reminds me of an old joke that I'm going to bring up. Once I saw a man on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. The sixth and final pillar of deconstruction is the church. This is a difficult one. According to the Post, this pillar falls for some because they just get tired of being abused by those in authority over them or being called a heretic for asking too many questions. And certainly we have seen a lot of abuse scandals come out. Oh yes, I I feel I feel this one. Um, yeah, I got uh, well. I was told that I had a spirit of rebellion because you know I questioned things and you know I didn't do I wasn't 
I wasn't always a good little boy. And that was, uh, that's why I got, you know, labeled as such. And yeah, and things I'm not the only person who, you know, gets, uh, pushed down or, you know, uh, gets, uh, what, like passive aggressive punishment because, you know, they dare to speak up or they dare to, uh, you know, challenge, challenge the authority or the intelligence or the wisdom of the, of, of, of the pastor. Um, that was in my, uh, fundamentalist charismatic church. And I will say that in my Baptist church, um, they actually welcomed me as an atheist. Um, after I came out, you know, they, you know, they were still, they were just as accepting of me as what I was before. And yes, I think different churches do it differently, but yeah, um, with the church, um, yeah, you, you cannot hide from the abuse scandal. And given that these churches speak for speak for God, and in the case of the Catholic Church, the Pope himself is Christ's vicar on earth. Um, you know, you cannot go past the fact that these people. These people abuse people and then covered it up to protect reputations and then demonize the victims. And even now, you know, there are still things to be uncovered. Um, one of my Twitter friends recently said that the Catholic Church is one of the biggest criminal organizations in history. And I agree with him. But it's not just the Catholic Church. Um, I would urge you to Google up the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse and Responses. And yeah, almost all of the mainline churches get dragged through dragged through the mud. The Catholics, the Salvos, the Anglicans, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, um, yeah, even a few non-Christian religions. Uh, Judaism gets, uh, you know, pulled through. There was East, there was Indian spirituality as well. Um, but yeah, the problem is that you, you can't say that the church is the body of Christ. And then the church constantly, the church has history of abusing people. And then you go, well, look, you know, the, the, so I say like the church is the body of Christ when it does something good, but when it does something bad, oh, that's because, oh, the, because of the curse of sin or because of frail humans or, you know, he wasn't walking in the right spirit. You can't have it both ways. We do see hypocrisy in the church. I know people who have come to their church leadership with questions and they were told, don't question such things or just believe the Bible or the Bible says so. And I think the church can do better. The church needs to be a safe place for people to process their questions and doubts. And when it comes to things like abuse and hypocrisy, the gospel opposes those things and the gospel has answers for those things. So there's no need to throw the gospel out with the failings of the church. Where the church has gone wrong, we need to repent. So these are the six pillars that begin to fall as people walk through their deconstruction processes. So as we love those in our lives who might be questioning some things or even going through a process of deconstruction, we can have a better understanding of where they're coming from and better equip ourselves to be able to answer the questions they have and love them through their journeys. Um, I would urge anyone listening to this to actually go one better. I would actually urge you to go back and prove 
What is a deity? What does a deity do? How can we be sure that a deity has intervened in earthly affairs? How do they intervene in earthly affairs? What powers do they have? What capabilities? Do they write things on books? What books have they written? How can we be sure that the book we hold in our hand has been inspired or authored or ghostwritten by a deity? And this is, this is actually the, uh, the pillar that I fell on was that I just could not prove without, without presupposing that God exists, that God exists. And so if I have to presuppose, presuppose that it's true for it to be true, then it's not really true. It's like, you know, if I was in a courtroom and I was presupposed to have committed tax fraud, then you haven't really proved I've committed tax fraud and you don't deserve to judge me based on the presupposition that I committed the tax fraud that I'm being accused of. So, yeah, but these other pillars... um Yeah, we see that suffering and you know abuse in the church and you know batshit crazy eschatology and um yeah, but I'd probably add a few more as well, not just intellectual, not just you know rationality, but also things like slavery, the defenses of slavery, the defense of genocide, the you know continual demonization of people who are different. The blatant intervention in politics. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot more that you know you could. You, there's a lot more threads you could pull on for the sweater to fall apart. Anyway, I've been Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad. Have a great week and look after yourselves.